welcome to this episode of 10 Conversations for 10 Years, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field looking at the future of healthcare improvement. I'm Amar, Chief Quality Officer at East London Foundation Trust, and delighted uh, that Pedro is joining us today with our special guest. Pedro, welcome. Hi, Amar. It's lovely to be here and continue to learn together and uh, reflect together, looking back to look forward. So, uh, and Hugh, it's uh, lovely to have you here. Amar, back to you to introduce Hugh and get us going. Thank you. So we're delighted to have with us today, Hugh McCaughey. Hugh has a, a fantastic pedigree in leading healthcare systems in applying quality improvement, having been the chief executive of a, an integrated healthcare provider in Northern Ireland for many years, and then most recently being national director for improvement in NHS England, uh, leading the application of improvement across the health and care system in England. So Hugh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Amr. It's, uh, it's a really great pleasure to uh, join you and Pedro. Uh, it feels just like a, a continuation. The number of times we've been at, at different improvement events where we've been talking late into the evening um, uh, about the improvement and how it could really transform the NHS and, and our commitment to it. So it's, it's lovely to be a part of these uh, podcasts. And congratulations also to East London. I think it's fabulous your 10-year or 10-year journey uh, and great credit to you and the uh, many others in East London for uh, continuing and sustaining that journey and you can see the obvious benefits for both staff and patients in that area so it's a fabulous uh, um, tribute to you. Thanks very much Hugh that's really kind and obviously you've you've led a similar journey uh, in in the Southeastern Trust in Belfast for for many years and and we couldn't have done any of this without collective leadership across large, complex organisations. And, and leading for improvement is the topic of today's conversation. So Pedro and I are going to pick your brains on this one. And we're going to mull over some questions about what it really takes to lead in a way that cultivates a culture of continuous improvement. And I wondered whether you could you could kick us off, Hugh, by helping us think about you know, what the key challenges are that you see for leaders in health and care today? What, what sort of things are people grappling with today? People are probably very familiar with the sort of list of things, you know, everybody's, you know, we hear them sort of um, in media and, and any commentators talk about the issues around demand, uh, around particularly pressure on services, on staff, um, on sort of organizations that are providing, but also the impact of that on patients with waiting times and uh, outcomes. And uh, and I think that sort of uh, growing disquiet around the NHS and whether the model's continuing to work. I think we're seeing sort of high level of public and political expectation, uh, which is weighing heavily. And I think the pressure on our workforce um, uh, is like it has never been before. And so I think this is, and I suspect, you know, if you talk to people 10 years ago, they would have talked about similar pressures. But I think we're at a point um, in the history of the NHS where these pressures have, have never been greater. The NHS is such an institution. It's so adored by uh, the people in this country. And I, I think we're at a point that unless we do something radically different uh, and actually deliver change that we've talked about for some, you know, for many years, but unless we actually do that, I think 
potentially the model this this current uh, form of NHS will strain too much and, and potentially collapse or the model be changed in a way which undermines the principles of the NHS. Um, I would have a great concern about that. For me, probably the biggest thing, which is, you know, people talk about the aging population and demand, but for me, it's, it's actually, it's more almost the equation of, or the, the ratio of people who need care relative to the uh, proportion of the population that pays for that and is, is present and able to deliver it. And that ratio is changing much more quickly than the proportion of, of aging population. So we have more people uh, needing care and less people able to pay for it or provide it. And I think that's the real risk. So we have talked for, you know, probably decades around needing to get upstream, needing to um, really talk about and deliver better health for people rather than more health care. And I think we're at the point that unless we do that, we're going to, the, the delivery of health care and social care, which is really important uh, part of this, um, is is going to tip and become unsustainable. So that that's the the stakes I think we're playing for at the minute. Hugh, what's your sense, given your experience in the Southeastern Trust and then as a national director of improvement, in terms of how improvement can be helpful in the challenges uh, in meeting the challenges that we face? My initial piece probably sounded a little bit negative. You know that we're at this tipping point. I think there are choices and, and there are choices that we have been talking about for some years. But I think now is the urgency with which we need to grasp those opportunities to actually really do something which, you know, addresses health inequalities, uh, which gives children a better start in life so that they're they're you know, they're not dependent on public services for 50 years, that we help people to age better. Uh, that we we do more to help communities that are disadvantaged, so that their mental health, their uh, and and some of the great drivers of ill health, like employment, like housing, um, like training opportunities, and the sense of well-being of communities, there is an opportunity for us to do something about that. So, <clears throat> excuse me, how can um, how can improvement health help, and how what can leaders do? And I think we have this um, it, it's choice, but also a responsibility to not only manage the short term uh, and to deal with the things that are very politically important and very immediate and very urgent, but we also have to balance that with creating something which creates a better future. We have to spend time on both. We have to manage short and deal with the urgent but we also have to manage long and create a, a better future, create a healthier, address some of the things which are causing ill health and help people to stay well uh, and not need public services so much. It's back to that equation. How do we do something? We, add, we can't create um, a, a much larger workforce and a much larger group of people paying for the NHS, but we can do something about the other side of the equation, which is the demand. And, but our focus has always been on the first, you know, we talk about health, but our, our focus has always been on the, the first two thirds of that on the HEAL, the healing part of it. We, we want to address 
ill health. We don't want to keep people healthy or we haven't invested enough in that. So um, what's the responsibility of leaders? I think um, we have a responsibility to do improvement and transformation. So the, the transformation piece is how do we change the model? How do we actually do something which helps people to age better, um, uh, to give children a better start in life? And it's, you know, sometimes that can feel very daunting, but there are really good examples of how the NHS has, has done transformation. Amar's world, mental health, you know, you roll back 25 years, um, you know, the, the number of people in institutional care, and the model was very much based around institutional care, uh, to now where, you know, the element of institutional care is very different. Uh, so the model was in mental health has been has been changed massively, significantly. Same is true in in areas like surgery, where the amount of surgery that is non, now done laparoscopically, uh, or even treated medically, um, uh, or done as day case, uh, as opposed to you know sort of many nights in in hospital. When I was a kid, I had my tonsils taken out. I think I spent a week in hospital. You know, and, and now that's, you know, done as a day case. Uh, so surgery, we have transformed. And, and I think sometimes we need to look back to see that actually we have done this before. So now how do we shift the dial so that we actually, our people um, actually have a bit of space and time to do more around helping people to stay well? And helping people to age better, helping people, children to start life um, uh, and have greater opportunities. Uh, and I think we need, there's a number of things we need to do to do that. We need to work with others. Uh, we need to use data uh, to identify uh, big data to identify who are, who are likely to be at risk, uh, who are likely to be in need. Um, we need to, to, to spend some of our time getting out um, and working with others to make sure that we actually do address um, ill health and keep people well and age better. Um, but the other thing we need to do <clears throat> is when we do that, how do we make sure that the new model embeds uh, and perfects? Um, th there's a lovely analogy, I think, with this, which is um, if you look at the history of, of the high jump, since in the last hundred years. So if you go back to the early 20th century, you know, people were sort of running up and throwing themselves over the, you know, over the, the, the high jump. Uh, and then, you know, there was people changed the model and they introduced the straddle. And then for the next, and that, that instantly meant a sort of 30% rise in, in the sort of achievement of what people could do in the high jump. And then for the next 20, 30 years, people perfected that and tweaked it and got better at it and applied essentially sporting uh, improvement tools to get better. And they delivered 30% improvement. So transformation gave 30% and the improvement of the technique gave another 30%. Then the model transformed again into the Frosby flop. Same thing happened. And so there's been this sort of, in this history, there's been steps where we change the model and then periods where we perfect and improve that model. And that's where I think it's this piece around we need to do, and as leaders, we need to create an environment where people have time to do the transformation and the improvement. Um, and that's, that's to me, it's, it's not just a choice, it's a responsibility for the future of the NHS, that those are the stakes that we're playing for.
So Hugh, that that that's the challenge, I think. Um, you know, if if you if our proposition is that this redesign or transformation, uh, a fundamental rethink of how we approach a problem, and then continual improvement to to, to build marginal gains, um, is going to take us in the desired direction. Well, what would you say to leaders who who just say that they don't have the time, they don't have the luxury of the time? to be able to, or, or their teams don't have the luxury of time to be able to step away from the day job and operations in order to even think about what could be done differently. And there is a there is an argument out there that, you know, improvement is just too slow or too rigid. It's not enough to tackle these kinds of challenges. What, what, what's your message to leaders who have those views? I, I just think that's, I, I've heard it for the last 10 years. I think it's um, it's just such a folly. You know, it is because funny, I, when I started um, in NHSing, I won't mention any names, but, you know, a, a very senior person saying to me, well, you know, improvement, sure, that's just the soft cushions and scented candles, um, you know, piece of, of managing the NHS. And that view that it was a sort of optional extra. But, you know, look, look at the last 10, 15 years of... Um, a regulatory and assurance-based system where we try and, uh, you know, target the organizations and services that are failing and imply, uh, apply significant attention and intervention to those. So we're always looking at the bottom end of the system. So that and a top-down uh, command and control performance-based model those two elements, which have you know been a feature of the last ten years, haven't left us in a better position. We've seen the you know COVID has has obviously accelerated and accentuated that. But before COVID, the the decline uh, was steady. You know you were seeing an increasing number of of patients um, who who were you know if you take something like waiting times in ED as a proxy for demand on the system and, and uh, downstream you were seeing increasing numbers of patients waiting longer for 10 years that approach hasn't delivered this transformed NHS and the problem with it has been it's been focused on managing the short term and the urgent and the political priority uh, but it hasn't actually helped us to transform and deliver a different model um, so I, I think the the it's a folly to believe that um, that approach will give us take us from where we are now to a transformed model. What has worked? Where are the shining examples? And if you look at um, the outstanding organisations and the the CQC's, um, I think seminal report back in September 2018, when they looked at what was it that made the outstanding organisations the way they were and one of the most probably the most important feature in that was they had improvement embedded into the organization now i don't mean improvement in the in the sense of um a quality improvement tool yes they had that so they had the science and they had the tools but those organizations were characterized by a sense from all staff of can do a sense of they were empowered they were engaged they were able to and owned the improvement for their service that's what an improvement approach does for staff it's culturally very different um it behaves very different the outcomes are better 
staff feel better. I mean, in those organizations, the leadership creates the vision, creates the, the direction, creates the environment and the culture. But a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the improvement is driven by frontline teams or leaders of frontline teams. That's what embedding improvement means in terms of how an organization functions. And the top-down, you know, when you visit organizations that have that culture and they can maybe keep things going for a while and they can get short-term successes, but there's, it's at a huge cost, A, to those leaders who are running consistently and making every decision, uh, but also on the staff who work there because they feel disengaged, they feel disempowered, they feel they don't have any influence or authority. And that becomes uh, a difficult place to work over time. And when you look across the NHS at the minute, so many of our staff feel beleaguered, uh, feel that they're working in a system where they feel like victims, you know, that they don't have the authority or the ability to change the pressure they're under. Organizations that embed improvement, staff feel differently. They can change things. They can make things better. They maybe can't at that level transform the model, um, but they can certainly improve the uh, make improvements to their service for their patients. And that's incredibly liberating for staff. Those organizations do better. The evidence is there. So we started with challenges. Uh, then you help frame how improvement can be helpful. Then you help frame as well a response to people who maybe have some doubts around the speed or pace or spirit of improvement. Uh, and now, as we kind of zoom into the behaviors, let's say, uh, we'd love for you to reflect with us on what leaders can do, actually, through small acts, through maybe regular habits and rituals that can either make or break uh, a culture of quality improvement uh, within the organization. I mean, the first thing to say, you know, I, I've made it sound very simple, you know, that, that um, in a sense, engage and embrace improvement and, you know, you, you'll get to a better place. And I, I, that's my belief. And, and But I think it's more than my belief. I think the evidence there, you look at the CQC report, the outstanding organizations, that's what they do. There's a sense of collective ownership. So, but it isn't simple. Um most leaders are under incredible pressure from above, you know, in a, in a hierarchical system. And this goes right to the political level, right to the very top of the political level, where people want to see short-term um, attractive results for the NHS and on a small number of things. So those things end up becoming where the attention is, is, is put. So leaders working in the system feel that pressure. Um, so it, it isn't simple, but there is a bit about, <clears throat> excuse me, the leap of faith, which is you've got to, if you don't start this journey, then you'll never make the improvement. You'll never create a different culture. And I think for me, leaders, what leaders have to do is actually do both, which is, is yes, you have to find a way to deliver some of the short term. So, you know, even in my journey, I'm sure it was the same in Amars, you have to deliver what's wanted from above. Uh, but that doesn't, you find a way to manage those short term goals. Uh, but you build a different approach in parallel with that. And at times, you actually have to, I think, act like an umbrella for the organization, 
protect them from some of those external pressures, find a way to deliver those or, or uh, certainly not see a deterioration in them while you build a different approach. What do leaders actually do? Um, I, I think you know they have to start the journey. They have to be stick with it. Um, they have to demonstrate. They have to be relentless about it. You know, it, it requires that sort of uh, persistence over uh, over a period of time, and it certainly isn't launch a, a QI strategy and then get back to the day job. That's we lose our authenticity and our credibility as leaders when staff see us say. You know we're going to do improvement. Um, there's it launched. Now we'll get back to looking after the money and the targets. Um, then staff, they, you know, they think it isn't authentic. They think it isn't real, and actually they lose trust. Um, I think in their leadership, uh, and they lose trust in improvement as a vehicle to a better place. So the things I think leaders need to do is they need to keep going. They need to keep doing this in tough times. It has to be part of how you deal with the hard stuff. You know, you use improvement. And it, it really interesting during COVID, the, many of those outstanding organizations used improvement to deal with some of the issues they were having to deal with. Organizations where it wasn't embedded paused QI. Uh, and you know went back to sort of command and control and dealing with those urgent issues, but those are you know the outstanding organisations. It was it was part of how they deal with things. It, you know improvement and the tools they had was embedded to an extent that that was how they dealt with any issues of the day. Um, and for an organisation that's starting out, that can seem a long way away, but it, and it takes time to build that. But if you don't start that journey and you can see, you'll never get there. And you can start to see uh, when you apply and target the improvement tools and skills on specific things, you can see improvements in those areas. And that helps to build momentum. What are the little things leaders do? I think it is, and maybe the first one isn't little, but it is um, you know, creating that purpose and vision and that commitment to embed improvement and to have a particular type of culture. But then I think it's the lots of the little things you do are be visible, go and visit teams, uh, take an interest in where people are using these tools, where they're actually starting to uh, make changes themselves at a team level. Really need uh, leaders to be visible, show an interest, celebrate when staff do this, show, it's, show that it's valued. When staff see, I, I remember as a, as a chief exec visiting teams, and when you just take it, it, people underestimate the impact it has when leaders visit, show an interest, ask questions, and sometimes even remove barriers for teams. Then they know that you know it, it, the, it doesn't matter what we say at a launch of a strategy. It's what we do around the board. Uh, it's what we do and what we ask and what we show an interest in when we visit a ward or a department. Or importantly, because I think this needs to extend into social care, when we visit a team in the community or when we visit, a, in my case, a children's home. Um, you know, it's what it's showing an interest in those things, being visible. That's when staff know it's authentic. That's when it really starts to embed. Thanks, Hugh. That's really powerful. Um, it, your description reminds me of um, a fantastic book called From Good to Great by Jim Collins, 
Uh, and I think the analogy is, it goes beyond healthcare. People listening to this may well be coming from different parts of the world, uh, inside or outside of healthcare. But I think that the ingredients of leadership, what Jim Collins describes as level five leadership of that personal humility, but that professional will to deliver results, um, I think is, is very similar. Uh, in, in what you're describing in improvement minded leaders and and what, you know, Collins's research over five years across different industries has also shown about companies that can can re, be, go beyond the rest of the pack and, and, and achieve greatness. Um, I, I, I totally concur with you, Hugh, that this is not easy. This is definitely not easy for leaders and certainly been my experience and our experience here that keeping that collective leadership for improvement is is tough at times uh, when we're all facing pressures from within and from without our organization and with the turnover that we see in executive roles uh, as well to maintain that belief and the purpose um, is, is tricky. I think your tips around how to bring it to life are really important for us and I again I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the findings from what I thought was a really powerful mixed method evaluation of culture in the NHS that um, Michael West and Mary Dix Woods conducted a few years ago now, really thinking about, you know, what were the traits of leaders in organizations where they seem to have a positive culture around quality. And then they talk a lot about the balance between dark spots and bright spots. And as leaders, you know, making sure we are consciously and intentionally paying attention to the bright spots and spending time on the things that are going really well and the teams that are doing fantastic things and, and finding ways to bring joy into our own experience as leaders and the things that excite us, as well as spending time on, on the areas that are not doing so well and struggling and need our support. I think that's important. And bringing it to life with standard work like walk rounds or going to the Gemba, structured ways of being visible at the, at the point of care and asking questions that can reinforce this uh, approach to improvement, uh, the autonomy of the teams to be able to make tests of change, those sorts of things, I think, can be so powerful, can't they? Our few years ago in um, the Harvard Business Review, which which I think is just another version of what you've described, which was a, um, a, an analysis of leadership styles. And the one that they advocated as being the most powerful was a thing called Humbition, uh, which was leadership that had was uh, characterized by humility. Uh, but was driven by ambition to make a difference. And, you know, th that to me has, um, I suppose, is, is probably the leadership style that I, I feel uh, is most powerful. And when I see the leaders I admire more, most uh, certainly exhibit that style of leadership. And it is. We, it, these are difficult jobs as leaders. It's a very difficult time. And we need people who have the ambition to actually take the NHS to a different place, take the way uh, to change the culture and the approach so that it is a better working environment for staff, to change the, the model so that we get better outcomes for our patients and for our communities. And importantly, I think, to work with others, because a lot of these things about upstream or you know, improving uh, health and well-being, it can't be done by doing more healthcare. It's done by working in partnership with education, uh, with other departments, uh, with local authorities, uh, but also importantly with communities so that communities 
can help co-produce the solutions, the better ways to keep them and their communities healthy and well. Um, and we've got to get much better at that. You mentioned something uh, about, you know, the change in leadership and that, that to me, Carrick, you know, when you asked the question about, you know, is, is improvement too slow? Um, if you look at the regulatory based model, special measures, in the, the five years before I took up the post as National Director of Improvement, the 10 organizations that had been in special measures the most had, I think it was 49 chief execs between them in five years. So the chief exec was changed every year. Is it any wonder they didn't um, you know, come out of special measures? Is it any wonder staff didn't buy into a different approach and culture? Is it any wonder that they couldn't fix some of those intractable problems? We need leadership that has um, some longevity and can build. Leadership, I think, is about cultivating a different approach and a different culture uh, and helping to transform the model um, so that improvement is embedded. You can't do that if you change your leadership team. I have one lovely story, which it, to me, I think illustrates the power of when it's embedded and staff own this and really um, own the outcomes uh, for their service and the quality of the service. We did a presentation, I think it was about six, seven years in on our journey at the forum, but we decided to do it um, from three different perspectives. It was me, the chief exec, there was a sort of uh, quite a senior therapist who'd been involved in improvement for five years and was telling her story. Um, but there was a um, a wonderful um, guy called Andrew Patterson, who was a band three phlebotomist at that time. And he told his story. And it was brilliant because it was the most powerful um, because uh, he got a standing ovation. He told that the story around for the two years before he got involved in improvement, he'd had 60 days sick. sick. Um, you know, he'd lost his drive, his motivation. He hated work. He then got involved in improvement and uh, through an improvement project. And as a band three, uh, he led that and he said it changed his life. Um, you know, that he suddenly was responsible things for things. He felt he had an influence. He felt he could make a contribution. He felt, and this is really important, he was connected to his purpose of quality care for his patients. But the, the real prize for those that don't believe was two years previously, we tried to reduce our blood usage on our wards to try and make a financial saving. And we'd set a target. I can't remember. It was you know, 10, 15, 20 percent. And we failed. You know, the, the, the executive team then through the, the hierarchy down through the organization tried to reduce blood usage and we failed. Andrew led a project, a band three, which he owned it. And he achieved a 42% reduction across all his wards uh, because he knew how it could be better. And he was given the, the tools, but we, an environment was there where he could do it and he could deliver improvements. Uh, and so that, A, it, it resolved an issue around a shortage of blood. It saved money. It was better outcomes for patients. It was, but that was led from the bottom up. That's what happens when improvement is embedded in an organization. 
here I remember meeting yourself and Andrew for a beer the night before, and Andrew uh, was very nervous about standing in front of people to speak, and he was also very proud of uh, what he had done alongside other people. So uh, I, I connect with that feeling deeply. And uh, for both of you, I suppose I'll go back to two people that I that I since you're mentioning other references that you go back to frequently as you reflect on leadership. One is Temen right, who I continue to learn a lot from, and he's first of the 14 points, which is about constancy of purpose. And Hugh, I think you've reminded us of that throughout this conversation. And the other one is a uh, uh, highly admired, at least by me, let's call him community organizer. He's much more than that, uh, called Marshall Gantz. And he has a definition of leadership, which I have always enjoyed and kind of looked into uh, when things have gotten tough. Uh, and he has four components. So leadership is about accept, accepting responsibility for enabling others to achieve shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. And uh, from your framing of the challenges through to your very pragmatic tips, you, I think you've uh, exemplified uh, how to live through a definition of, of leadership that is about this accepting responsibility for enabling others to achieve shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. So. Amar, at least I am very grateful for the time that we've spent with you uh, here today and uh, and to you and everyone across ELFT for leading in such a, a generous and partnership-oriented way. So I'll, I'll give it back to you to help us close. Thank you so much, Pedro. And a huge thanks, Hugh, for joining us today, uh, sharing some pearls of wisdom and some insights to help us all as leaders think about how we can better serve those um, in our communities and in our organizations. So thank you so much for joining us, Hugh. It's been a pleasure, Amor. And I, I suppose actually I actually had one final bit of advice for anyone listening and starting their journey is uh, through my last 15 years, I've gained and sustained by having connections with others that are walking this journey. So you, Amar, Pedro, but many others um, uh, across the NHS, who helped and wanted to, to do this as well. And by doing it together, uh, I think we were able to sustain our progress. And, and my advice to anyone starting this journey is build your connections. There are people like ourselves and many others who want to help people make this journey. So, so reach out, build your connections, draw on that, that expertise that is there uh, and share the journey with others because it's much easier walk together than alone. Fantastic. And with that, a huge thanks, Hugh. Thank you, Pedro. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully see you on the next episode.